This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A drug used to tranquilize elephants and other large animals has claimed at least two human lives in Colorado. The synthetic opioid carfentanil is 10,000 times stronger than morphine. Sort of hard to wrap your mind around. Amy Lowe is with Arapaho House, a network of drug treatment centers in Metro Denver. And Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you. The DEA issued a warning last year about carfentanil being linked to, quote, a significant number of overdose, overdose deaths around the country, end quote. When did you start seeing clients who had used carfentanil? We first heard about it um, a year ago in 2016. I actually heard about it on the news. Um, we've only recently started assessing specifically for use of synthetic opioids in addition to general heroin or prescription painkillers, which is the the leading admission. Right. So the, the, the menu of these drugs is yeah. expanding in some ways. Yeah. Um, do you look for something in particular to know that it's carfentanil or do you have to do a specific test? Yeah. In 2008, we saw an increase in opioid admissions of 540% and then became aware of this synthetic um, continuum of different types so really, we outright ask about the use of synthetic in addition to prescription painkillers or heroin when we do our assessments. Okay, lots of questions here. First yeah. of all, where does this drug come from? Yeah, the, the drug is manufactured in China and then shipped um, overseas, it likely with uh, Mexican cartels and then smuggled into the United States. And it started on the East Coast, made its way to the Midwest and emerged in Colorado. How is it taken? The drug can be snorted or smoked. Um, the gentleman found it near Aspen, um, they did, found capsules containing the powder that was also mixed with heroin. This is one of the deaths in Colorado. Yes. And they say at least two deaths in Colorado because the this can be mixed with other drugs and it's not entirely clear uh, what has taken someone's life. Yeah, definitely. Um, at Arapaho House, we've seen um, an increase in heroin admissions, and then likely the drug carfentanil is being cut with heroin. Is it always that someone knows they're taking it or that it might be added to a drug unbeknownst to them? Yeah, I would say more likely than not, um, they don't know they're taking it. They they're, don't know. Right. They're okay. buying heroin and the drug can be is mixed in. And why would it be mixed in? Because it's cheaper, um, it produces greater effects at a lesser cost, which is the supply-demand you know, business model. If you can do, get more for less, then that's the route that a person's going to take. I see. Uh, and that makes it thus attractive to drug dealers. And we've talked Certainly. about the, the power of this drug as well. Yes. Um, does that mean anyone who takes it risks overdosing or what? Yes. That means anyone who risks, who takes it risks overdosing. It's something that's 10,000 times stronger than morphine. Correct. What does that mean for recovery, for getting sober? Yeah. Um, and at Arapaho House, we do um, a lot more education around the risk factors for overdose potential with patients who are addicted to heroin Um the recovery is the same with any other drug, um, a desire to stop, and that mixed with treatment um, is, is really how to stay abstain from the drug. However, if a person relapses, the overdose potential goes way, way up because the tolerance is down. So we do a lot more monitoring in that realm, mm. and relapse is common. 
President Trump yesterday appointed a new opioid commission. It's bipartisan and will be led by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. They have 90 days to craft recommendations to fight the epidemic. Mm -hmm. I will say that in the president's proposed budget, there's also the recommendation of cutting the drug control office by some 95 percent. What do you most want to see from this administration? What I'd really like to see is more awareness around the stigma that still exists with getting help for for this. Um, There's still a lot of snap judgments about just simply don't pick it up. You know it's dangerous. And it's it's not that simple. People who are already addicted are quite powerless to a point. So just address the stigma. Make it okay to get help. And how do you do that? It sounds easier said than done. Yeah, I think it's more of of an understanding of um, what it means to be addicted and how it came to be. A lot of the people we see at Arapahoe House did not set out to become a heroin addict. 70% picked up the drug by getting prescribed for a tooth extraction and then took it as prescribed and became addicted as they progressed through the prescription. Dental work. Dental work. Winds up becoming a pathway. Yes. And they're then longing for a stronger and stronger high. That's a road that can eventually lead to something like carfentanil. What, what is your level of concern with this uh, potent drug now emerging? The level of concern would be the folks who take it not knowing that's what they're getting uh-huh. and being so addicted and afraid of withdrawals that the desperation trumps logic and that they OD. Without, without, without knowing it. And then also the relapse. Most overdoses happen, like I said, because of relapse. And so one picking up once after being sober for seven days can lead to an overdose. The state legislature passed a bill this session that expands Medicaid benefits to cover substance abuse treatment due to the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And to say that Arapahoe House already accepts Medicaid and private insurance. Yes. And uh, this program is funded through a variety of sources, including government money, private donations. Yeah. How much of an impact has the opioid epidemic had on your ability to deliver services? Yeah. um, Since 2008, we've seen that uh, increase in admissions of 540 percent. Right. And can you can you handle that? You have the staff to. We are working on a business model every single day to increase, as we call, widen the funnel so that we can meet the need as the need arises when people are in crisis. Um, If we wait even 24 hours, they may have gotten fearful and decided not to get help. So we are expanding uh, every day to try to meet the need at the moment that they walk in the clinic. To go back to how people get hooked in the first place, so you mm-hmm. talked about dental work, for instance. What, what would you change, if anything, in that doctor-patient relationship? Yeah, these per, the uh, patients start taking them as prescribed from a doctor who's a person of trust. And so I would start outright letting patients know about the addictive nature of them, prescribe only the amount that's needed not anything in excess, and then a lot of education around getting rid of the remaining amount. Again, a lot of people um, get them from a friend or a family member. Um, Who out have of the, extra or Yeah, out of the medicine cabinet. Um, Lastly, on, on the question of education, which you mentioned there, are you trying to educate uh, people that Arapahoe House touches about carfentanil in particular? Yeah, certainly. We've participated in other interviews um, and if anything, telling our patients through psychoeducation about 
um, this continuum and the danger. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's Amy Lowe. She's director of Outpatient Services at Arapahoe House. It's a network of drug treatment centers in Metro Denver. We talked, uh, among other things, about carfentanil use. This is a synthetic opioid that was otherwise designed to tranquilize large animals. Coming up, a new obstacle emerges to building affordable housing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's getting trickier to build affordable housing, which many Colorado communities are starved for. Developers are having a harder time landing the financing they need. The reason isn't terribly intuitive. It actually relates to President Trump's plan to cut the corporate tax rates. Jerry Lynn Martinez from the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, or CHAFA, is going to walk us through this. And welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So the trouble that developers are having relates to something called the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, sometimes called LIHTX. Uh, these were introduced in 1986 to create an incentive to invest in affordable housing. Uh, br- briefly, how did these credits work? What's going on here? Right. Well, you're exactly right. Uh, low-income housing tax credits are a federal resource designed to incentivize the private sector to invest in the development or the preservation of affordable rental housing. Uh When an investor is looking to purchase the tax credits, they're going to buy these credits from an affordable housing developer who has received a tax credit award in Colorado from us, from CHAFA. And they are going to become an equity partner in that transaction, bringing in financing and dollars needed to get this affordable housing built. So this is often uh, these credits bridge the gap, if you will, on projects that would otherwise not be economically feasible. That's right. Okay. Who are these investors typically? Typically, a tax credit investor might be a, a lo- banks, insurance companies, corporations, really anyone who's looking to offset uh, federal tax liability. And they buy these tax credits that are sold actually on a tax credit market. President Trump is calling for a reduction in the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 15 percent. So what does that do to the incentive to buy these affordable housing tax credits? Help us understand the interplay there. Well, when an investor's looking to offset their corporate tax liability, all of a sudden when there's conversation about that liability coming down, the value of that tax credit or the need to have a credit to offset that liability reduces. And so they may be uh, looking at what they're willing to pay for that credit. But in real-life dollars, Colorado Developments last year, uh, who were relying on the tax credit, were selling that for around a dollar to a dollar ten per credit. Okay. Right now, uh, those credits are selling for around eighty-five, ninety-five cents on the dollar. So that is an adjustment. Now, it's not the lowest that those credits have ever sold for. Mm. Um, so I don't want to cause unnecessary unnecessary alarm, but it is certainly an adjustment in pricing. And the idea is if they believe their tax rate is going down anyway, these tax credits become therefore less attractive. That's right. Okay. And are you seeing, you've talked about the difference in the price, does that translate yet to anything concrete in affordable housing starts or stock in Colorado? So developers who were expecting that 
pricing of more a dollar to a dollar ten, and we're building out their budgets according to that pricing. Now are starting to see some gaps in their budgets, anywhere from five hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars. Not every development that was awarded credits uh, last year, for example, is seeing this pricing adjustment, but certainly some, and that translates to significant resources that now they need to go out and find in order to continue to be feasible. Okay, and and to then finance what could be affordable housing. That's right. Okay, are there other places to make that up? There are some options. These developers were hearing there. Uh, first and foremost, looking right back into the development to see if there's any efficiencies that can be made, costs that can be reduced. Uh, we're hearing from some that they anticipate coming back to us, seeing if there's any supplemental credit that we might be able to help them with. And do what is your answer to them? We we do, as a regular part of our allocation process, do hold back some credit in the event that something like this occurs. So that is a potential possibility. They might also be going to cities and counties where they're looking to build. They might have home dollars, community development block grants, or affordable housing funds that they could look at. I want to say that uh, President Trump's tax cut is just a proposal at this point, but it's based on that proposal that the market may already be softening. Is that right? It's based on the anticipation that something with tax reform might occur soon that has created some fluctuation in the market. Okay, so there's the potential for gap in projects already under construction. And what would you expect in terms of interest in brand new affordable housing that is, you know, starts? Developments that are coming online now are building their budgets around the pricing that's existing today. Yeah. So there's they're seeing that and they're responding. And I, we are all actively monitoring the tax reform conversations to see how that further interplays with the pricing of the credit. Colorado's economy is booming. Unemployment below 3 percent. And the average rent in the state is up 50 percent from the beginning of 2011. Does this come at an inopportune time? It is a very difficult time across Colorado for affordable housing in a time, excuse me, when the equity that can be raised from low-income housing tax credits is critical. Uh, We know in Colorado half of our state's renters are cost-burdened. And when I say that— Cost-burdened, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah, that means that they are spending more than 30 percent of their— gross annual income on their housing, one in four are extremely cost burdened, spending more than 50 percent. More than half their income on housing. That's right. And that makes that a very difficult situation uh, and puts these households at risk of not being able to afford other life needs, foods, health care, transportation, child care, uh, things that we all need to survive. I think there would be any number of folks who say lowering the corporate tax rate is a good thing. And yes, there may have to be some shifts in the economy. So if indeed this proposal moves forward, becomes reality, what is the remedy here? Is it uh, an adjustment overall in this LIHTC program? Well, I think what we are always conscious of is making sure that the LIHTC program remains as available and as robust as possible. Folks have talked about increasing the amount of low-income housing tax credits that states have to award so that there are more... To make them more valuable. To make uh, more of them available so that we have more resources to support the housing needs in our state. But if no one's biting... Does it help to have more available? It does because we need those resources. There still is tremendous equity coming in. Even at those price points. Even at those price points. Okay, important to know. I want to say that according to a report this week by NPR, which looked at these 
tax credits nationally, fewer affordable units are being developed, even though the program is costing taxpayers uh, quite a bit more in tax credits, some growth of 66%. Has that been the experience in Colorado? Do, do you know that this works, Jerry Lynn? We do know that the low-income housing tax credit program works in, in Colorado. It's actually not our experience that we're producing fewer units. We're actually at an all-time high here in Colorado in terms of the number of units that we're supporting with low-income housing tax credits. In 2015, that number was about 4,000 units. Now, these are either new units coming online or units that we're preserving. We're preserving their affordability. Last year, it was around 3,400 units. So there is tremendous equity coming into our state that is supporting very tangible affordable housing that's being built. And some of the communities where LIHTC developments are occurring are Denver, Evergreen, Longmont, Greeley, uh, Colorado Springs, Buena Vista, Canyon City, Newcastle, Basalt, uh, Westminster, Brighton, all across the state. So wide variety of our state's housing needs are able to be addressed through the low-income housing tax credit program. And you're saying that you're investing in, in a record number of projects. I guess it's just in comparison to the huge influx of people, it can still feel like a drop in the bucket. There is tremendous need. And as as you pointed out before, that need continues to grow. Rents increasing, market rate rents increasing 50% over the past five years. But what that tells us is that that's a time to continue our work and to further our work and to expand, not to slow down. And I think this state has been really well served by some tremendous leadership through Governor Hickenlooper and some local mayors all across the state who recognize the value of having diverse affordable housing stock in their communities, not only on a on a human level and on a personal level, Ryan, but also the economic impact that that brings. You think about the kind of workers that need affordable housing. They're often critical to the economy. I think of teachers, service workers, the list goes on. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. And helping us understand the interplay there. Jerry Lynn Martinez, Marketing and Community Relations Director at the Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, often called CHAFA. Denver architect Ed Weiss was laid to rest Saturday. He was 92. And if you've read Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road, you may remember him as the character Tim Gray. White and Kerouac met at Columbia University and remained friends until the writer's death in 1969. Meanwhile, Ed White left his mark on Denver with his architecture, including the Tropical Conservatory at the Botanic Gardens and his preservation work. Mike McPhee wrote about Ed White's life in the Denver Post. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. You knew Ed White. What was he like? He was a wonderful guy. He was a very soft-spoken, real gentleman. A gentleman. Your interactions uh, demonstrated that, I guess. Well, I, you know, I've spoken to a number of his friends, and they all use the same words about him. Just a kind, interesting, easygoing man who He's... made a real mark. Yeah, literarily, architecturally. Uh, Ed White grew up in Denver, went to East High School, and as I said, met Jack Kerouac at Columbia. Uh, The poet Allen Ginsberg was part of that same crowd. And in the summer of 1947, White invites Kerouac to Denver. So I guess it's fair to say that Ed White was partly responsible for On the Road? Um, Yes, he could claim some 
portion of helping Kerouac as a writer. His his best known contribution was in a Chinese restaurant up in Harlem one evening. He he showed Kerouac these notebooks that he, Ed White carried around as sketchbooks, okay, architectural sketchbooks. And he said, "Why don't you do something similar with words?" And they called them word sketches. And from then on, Kerouac started carrying small notebooks on the road, making word sketches of his experiences, which eventually became the book On the Road. Oh, wow. And so this architectural device for sketching becomes a a linguistic one. Um, and this, this was called spontaneous prose, I think. Yeah. Um, he gave Ed White uh, great credit for helping him uh, make little sketches, which eventually he typed out in 1951 on a, on a single sheet of paper. Yeah. It was 10 feet long. Or I don't know how long it was, but it was pretty unique and caused a stir. That stream of consciousness, <laughs> if you will. Why don't we listen to a section of the book On the Road read by Tom Parker, where Sal talks about hanging out with some of his new Denver friends. So Tim Gray, Babe Rollins, and Stan Shepard, uh, and they're talking about traveling to Mexico. Tim Gray, Stan, Babe, and I spent an entire week of afternoons in lovely Denver bars where the waitresses wear slacks and cut around with bashful, loving eyes. Not hardened waitresses, but waitresses that fall in love with the clientele and have explosive affairs and huff and sweat and suffer from one bar to another. And we spent the same week in nights at Five Points listening to jazz, drinking booze in crazy Negro saloons, and gabbing till five o'clock in the morn in my basement. Noon usually found us reclined in Babe's backyard among the little Denver kids who played cowboys and Indians and dropped on us from cherry trees in bloom. I was having a wonderful time, and the whole world opened up before me because I had no dreams. Stan and I plotted to make Tim Gray come with us, but Tim was stuck to his Denver life. Sal, of course, Sal Paradise, uh, the book's narrator. Um, as I said, Tim Gray was based on Ed White. He's not a major character in On the Road, but he does turn up in several other books mm-hmm. by Kerouac. Uh, and in real life, they were they were lifelong friends, weren't they? They were very close. Um, they met at Columbia in 1942 in freshman year. There were a number of classmates, uh, some from Denver. And then Ed left to go into the Navy. He was a brilliant student. They, uh, the Navy taught him Japanese, and he spent the rest of the war deciphering uh, classified documents from the Japanese Navy. Oh, wow. Um, he came back to Columbia and hooked up again with Kerouac and Ginsburg and others, graduated. They, uh, he got a scholarship to the Sorbonne in Paris to study French literature. He went over, but he said he never attended class as much. But <laughs> it was there that he got interested in architecture, so he came back to Columbia and got a graduate degree in Columbia, uh, in architecture. And along the way, he nurtured this friendship. He he had he had two lives almost. One was a, a very serious student, and the other was down in the streets on the in the jazz clubs with Kerouac and. And uh, listening to Ella Fitzgerald and Mel Torme and all the up-and-coming jazz people in the village. Uh, their relationship for many years was also uh, epistolary. I mean, it was over letters that they wrote back and forth. 
Well, it, Ed was pretty serious about life also. And when he got his degree in architecture, he came to Denver and, and started practicing. But he stayed in touch. And uh, the family now has a collection. Well, they, the family doesn't have, but there are 90 letters that have been preserved between Kerouac and Ed White. And the family's putting together a, a, a piece about all of this. Um, I, re- I was fascinated reading this stuff. Oh, yeah? What, what fascinated you? Just Ed's two sides. He was so smart, but he was so kind and likable. Um, he, could, he could sit down with Kerouac. He could go and design the conservatory at the Botanic Gardens. He was, and, and it was never about Ed. It was always... Um, he was a kind, as as my Swedish friends say, he never took up much space in the room. <laughs> so he did indeed uh, design the Betcher Memorial Tropical Conservatory at the Denver Botanic Gardens, which uh, he and his partner, Victor Hornbein, uh, were responsible for. It was completed in 1966. What else did Ed White design? Well, he did a lot of medical buildings. Um, because of his family, his, uh, his uh, father-in-law was uh, uh, Dr. Waring, and uh, his first wife, Anne, her family had started the Porter Hospital. But he got very interested in preservation. And according to Dana Crawford, who is the a, developer, a real preservationist. Yeah, and preservationist. Ed was every step of the way from the start in preserving what's in Denver today. Yeah, he struck out on his own uh, in terms of, of having a firm in, in 75 and primarily focused on preserving and restoring old buildings. Can you give us a sense of some of that work? Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the notorious targets of Molly Brown House, and he fought the, the losing battle for the Moffat Mansion at 8th and Grant. Oh, this, um, these were not battles he always won. So, but uh, just orchestrating and generating interest in preservation and then adding the architectural expertise to a number of projects. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Mike McPhee recently wrote about the life of architect Ed White for the Denver Post. White died on April 29th at age 92. McPhee is also the author of Dana Crawford, 50 Years Saving the Soul of a City, about that preservationist. After a break, Mother's Day comedy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A warning, this next segment could be considered parentally incorrect. That's a term coined by Denver mothers Shana Firm and Tracy T. They say it's the best way to describe their comedy show. Oh God, you just puked in your car seat. Now you gotta ride all the way home in your car seat filled with your Firm singing her song, Gross, one of many tunes she performs on stage. The duo is at the Denver Paramount Theater Saturday for their annual Mother's Day Eve comedy show and dance party. My colleague Nathan Heffel spoke with them earlier this year. 
Shayna Tracy, welcome to the program. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Shayna, explain what you mean by parentally incorrect. The show started with us kind of, you know, the idea was that we would say the things that people really were afraid to say. Yeah. We would be the jerks and kind of talk about the things that happen as parents that, you know, maybe you don't want to admit or, you know, that maybe you would feel guilty saying or talking about. Like what? Well, you know, there's just a lot of things that happen to us every day. And I think one of the – we don't use these words in particular, but we, we say that parenting is really messed up and ridiculous. And I think that on a daily basis, there's just so many <laughs> things that we never thought we'd be doing that we're doing. And so that's the world we live in. And that's kind of the experience we give the moms, you know, to kind of celebrate how messed up being a parent is. And, and Tracy, I understand that this all began with a need for a night out w- without the kids. Yes. Um. So we started the show – um, a little over four years ago up at Local 46 in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. Um, and we both our daughters were a year and a half-ish, and Shay had just had her second. And we were just kind of in the thick of it. And Shay had been sort of reading her local mommy listserv and people, you know, freaking out about just sort of everything like you do when you have a young kid. And, you know, she just kind of thought, gosh, we just all need to have a night out and a drink. So we just sort of put the show together on a lark as a way to keep our brains going, too, instead of just oozing out of our heads with diaper cream. (laughs) So it started very organically and then just grew into our full-time job and a really fun, very live, interactive, multimedia night out for moms. Now, you have a background in the entertainment industry. You didn't Mm -hmm. just go from parenting right into (laughs) comedy. No, no, no. You you have some (laughs) experience. So how does this mommy comedy compared to maybe what you were doing? Well, I think that if you had asked me six years ago if I would be writing songs about what it's like to be a mom, I would have told you that that sounds terrible. But I've been writing comedy songs for, gosh, I mean, I did it for 12 years in New York City. And so I I feel like it was just kind of an evolution of myself as a comedian. And it just kind of happened really organically. And it just is funny because it's still funny, you know? Yeah. And it was just, you know... Comedy is about the space that you're in at the moment, right? So this is this is our world, and it's very easy to laugh. I mean, we think it's important to laugh at parenting. It's just such a ridiculous <laughs> endeavor. Well, let's hear another clip from one of your shows. It's uh, Shay singing the song Parental Lovin'. Oh. Let's close the baby gate and have a date. <laughs> I'm still a woman. They call mom. Where where do you get uh, this material from? I just wrote a new song for um, this next show about like how moms constantly think, you know, that their kid is not getting sick, that it's just allergies. You know, like the only reason that we think of something that kind of weird and and off is because that's so common and you would never think of it. But it's, of course, every mom is always like, oh, my God, please just be allergies. Please just be allergies. Well, and it's definitely our experience, but it's also, it's also our friends' experience. It's our family's experience. I mean, you know, you share stories as parents and you just, you know, you can't make that stuff up. You know, the show's really not about us or the comedy in, in the larger scope. It's really a night out. It is the mom's night out. And that's what it's become. And these moms, you know, they go to dinner together first at 6 o'clock. The show starts at 7.30. It's done at 9.00 and they're home by 10. It's really so much more about them having a great time. We give them prizes. We give them 
they play games. You know, we we laugh it out. We have everybody write down the most ridiculous thing their kid did recently, which you can see on our Instagram page. There's a lot of them that we post, but we have tens of thousands of those, you know, these stories that we read that are their stories. And it's not, we're not, we don't man bash. We're not, we don't just stand up and talk about how bad our husbands are. We don't kid bash even. It's not like, you know, two moms holding a martini glass wearing an apron like, I wish everyone did the laundry. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. not that kind of a show. Although I do wish everyone did the laundry. I wish but... there was isn't laundry. I just wish laundry <laughs> didn't exist. But um, so it's it's really about the parenting experience, and it's it like we said, it's not really about us. It's about being part of this group of parents. What, what's one of the most outlandish stories that have been written at, at one of these uh, these events about someone's <laughs> child? I don't know if we can say them on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> There's so oh my gosh, there's so many. Well, there was the Walmart, the epic Walmart that kind of started it. Oh, all. let's hear that one. So. <laughs> this was one of the first ones and uh she lost her kid at Walmart and if you don't know this if when you say when you tell Walmart or any big store that you lose your kid it is instant lockdown it's pretty amazing like stores like doors are locked no one in no one out and it's a thorough like massive body search through the entire store until the child is found and it's completely embarrassing. And when they find the kid, they have to interview you yeah. to make sure that you're actually the kid's mother. I mean, yeah. it is like an ordeal. It's it's a- <laughs> and she had, I think she's like three kids yeah. and one of the kids was lost. Yeah. And so thank God they found him. But then this was right before she came to the Pump and Dump show and hadn't she hadn't been out in a long time. So she like did that, came home, dropped the kids off, came to the show and wrote it down. And so when we read this, Everyone was just like applauding her. It was like this great moment where everyone just commiserated with her and felt it. And we and just we, gave her everything we, we had on stage. We literally stage. turned around and, and like anything that had been donated to give to moms that night, we were like, and this is for you. And this, this is, is for you. Yes. And this is for you. Please just take it. And it, it made us kind of realize that it was their stories that were going to make the show super yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, Shana, you have two children, ages four and six. Uh, Tracy, your child is six. As they grow and get older, how does that influence your comedy? In parenting, first of all, everything that happens kind of lasts for like three weeks, right? And then changes. So, you know, I would say that on a larger scale is just like, you know, you think you've got one thing figured out or you think, oh, finally they're potty trained. Well, now, you know, every time I walk into the bathroom, nobody's flushed. You know, there's just like a constant challenge in a different way as they grow. So our show is really geared towards new moms um, because that's when you're really in the thick of it and really need our show. But we have grandmas that go and still really appreciate what we're talking about because we've created kind of this space for every kind of mom. And I think it's good because I failed to um, make a baby book or record any of those early times with my <laughs> So if for us, it's good. We, you know, we're constantly reflecting back on our, you know, the early days experiences compared to now and finding that balance. And I think it gives us perspective you know, we can think back of those early baby days when you just thought everything was going to go up in smoke. And and then it's it's nice to compare it to kind of where we're at now, which isn't mm-hmm. I mean, we still have super young children. So everything we're going through is new and we're certain we're going to fail. And every day, you know, we just wonder if we're going to make it through too. Denver comedians and moms, Shana Firm and Tracy T. They perform at Denver's Paramount Theater Saturday for their annual Mother's Day Eve show. They spoke with CPR's Nathan Heffel earlier this year. Spring is one of the best times to fly fish in Colorado, but it can be a really hard sport to master. 
Well, Daniel Galhardo of Boulder says the Tenkara style of fly fishing, which started in Japan, is easier to learn than its Western cousin. He has written a book about it called Tenkara. Galhardo sits down with my colleague Nathan Heffel. Daniel, welcome to Colorado Matters. Well, thanks so much for having me, Nathan. My but pleasure. Before we get started in learning this particular style, you told me just now that, that you had some great fly fishing in early May. Why is this kind of the prime time for fishing? Well, you know, the, the fish have been a little bit more dormant throughout the winter, you know, not a whole lot of bugs for them to eat, perhaps. The water starts warming up a little bit. They get more active. Uh, so we start seeing the fish rising, taking some bugs, um, you know, and the fishing can be terrific in the sp- uh, late, you know, early spring. And um, although now it starts getting a little bit more challenging. Because of the, the flow of the rising water, the more rapids and things like that. Exactly. Just last week, the fishing was great. But now, you know, we had some storms, you know, yeah. coming through. But we also have the snow runoff. Uh, the runoff season can be very challenging here in Colorado. Um there's usually a period of a few weeks where the fishing gets very challenging because there's too much water flowing through the river. The fish kind of stay down. They don't really move to eat as much as they used to. Yeah. Now, when I think of fly fishing, I, I imagine an angler kind of flicking his rod, imitating these insects with an elaborate fly tied to the end of, of his elaborate pole. But the Tenkara style of fly fishing is a bit different. How how so? Yeah, Tenkara is a different way of fly fishing, a different way of thinking about it. It's a Japanese method of fly fishing that uses just a rod, line, and fly, no reel. Uh, it's a simpler way to do it as well. You tie a line right to the tip of the rod. Uh, the casting is very, very quick to pick up and to learn. Uh, and you're really focused more on the fishing as opposed to all the equipment that you have to master a lot of times in what we call Western fly fishing. So what is the equipment for Tenkara fly fishing? Yeah, so you have a rod, line, and fly. Yeah. Uh, the rods are really cool. Uh, they're usually about 12 feet long when they're extended, but they're telescopic. So a rod that is 12 foot long might telescope down into about 20 inches. It goes in your backpack, you know, and you can hike with it and that kind of thing. Uh, and then you have a line, just a spool of line, a fixed length of line that you tie right to the tip of the rod as opposed to a running line coming from a reel and that kind of thing. Uh, at the end of the line, you have a thing that we call the tippet, just a very clear fishing line that goes between your main line and a fly. And then you have an artificial fly at the end of that. Uh, and even the flies in Tenkara are a little bit different from Western flies as well, which is an interesting thing. How so? How are they different? Well, uh, so we can, just to kind of give it a little bit of context, uh, you know, Tenkara is a type of fishing that's being uh, originated in Japan hundreds of years ago. Uh, originally, it was done by commercial anglers trying to catch a lot of fish for a living. And, you know, of course, now it became a sport. But that historical kind of context, I think, is interesting because the commercial anglers, they're trying to keep, uh, trying to catch as many fish as they could. They're but making they, a living off this stuff. Making a live off of it, a living off of it. Uh, but they really had to keep their fly fishing simple out of necessity. And instead of like imitating particular bugs and, you know, spending all this time tying different flies that would imitate each particular bug, they tied the simplest flies that they could, and then they focused on their technique to catch fish. So instead of imitating flies, they just focused on their presentation with one simple pattern, perhaps. I understand you have your own place in Tenkara history, especially here in the United States. What is that? Well, uh, so about eight years ago, I became the first person to introduce this method of fly fishing outside of Japan. Uh, it's kind of an interesting thing where this method has been done in Japan for a long time, but it kind of remained a seeming secret. You know, it's uh, they just kind of kept it to themselves for the most part. And I don't think I was the first person to really see it being done, uh, perhaps not even the first person to fish with Tenkara. 
But I had the idea that this could open the doors to a lot of people to fly fish. You know, a simpler way to do it. Um, people can get the rods. If they're hiking, they can fly fish. So I decided to introduce Tenkara here in the States in 2009. And had you fly fished before? Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had been fly fishing for roughly 13 years when I discovered Tenkara. Uh, I was pretty involved in fly fishing. I was a director of a fly fishing club in San Francisco where I used to live. And, um, you know, so I had this history of fly fishing, but I also tried to introduce a lot of friends and a lot of people to the, to the sport, and everybody kind of had the same comment. It's like, there's too much gear, it's too intimidating, and all of a sudden I discovered Tenkara, and I'm like, hey, you don't need a lot of stuff, try this, you know, just a rod line and fly, and you can go fly fishing right now, and so that's how I got started. In your book, you talk about Tenkara teachers that, that are experts in this style. Who's been the most influential to your learning the style of fishing? Well, by far, uh, there's a master teacher of mine, Dr. Ishigaki or Dr. Hisao Ishigaki. Um, very serendipitously, uh, back in 2009, after I started the company, Tenkara USA, uh, there was an event in New York where he was going to come to talk about Tenkara for the first time in the States. Very coincidentally. So I went there and I got to meet him. You um, flew there? I flew over there just from to Boulder. meet him. From, uh, I was in San Francisco okay. at the time, but uh, yeah, I flew there just to Cross get to country. meet him. Cross country. Cross country. And within a few minutes, he kind of joked that he was going to be my Tenkara father. And I was therefore his Tenkara son. Uh, so he started really teaching me everything that he knows about Tenkara. And I started sharing that story and the, the techniques, everything here. It, it sounds like a like a true philosophy. I'm thinking maybe uh, Japanese martial arts and mm -hmm. things like. Is there a similarity between between that in terms well, of style? Well, I think we can come up with one. I don't think Tenkara per se like really had a philosophy to it. You know, it's a method of fishing that people used to catch fish. Um, but I, as I talk in my book, I do derive a little bit of a philosophy uh, from Tenkara, and and a lot of our you know people that are fishing with Tenkara enjoy that, which is based on the simplicity. And the idea that you don't really need a whole lot of stuff. You should rely on just the essentials to do different different things. Instead of carrying a lot more gear, you know, adding complexity to our life, we just keep it simple, focus more on technique than on equipment. So that's the philosophy that I usually talk about. What do you say to purists then who say fly fishing should be difficult? It should be something one should master. Well, you know, there there's uh, different components to it. So I, I like to think of Tenkara as being very simple on the surface you know, it's rod line and fly. Anybody picks it up, you know, very quickly. But like anything simple, uh, we have the self-imposed limitations that folk makes make us learn more and more. So instead of going to the river, learning about the equipment that I'm using, I can really focus on my presentation of the fly, for example, or I can focus on getting a little bit of a better casting accuracy, or I can focus on how to read the river. So I'm learning more and more about those things. Um, are you hoping to expand the philosophy of Tenkara a bit? Since you're saying there may not be kind of a, a firm philosophy in the in, in the original fishing there. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I love talking about and I love uh, about Tenkara is that it shows us there's a different way of thinking, not only about fly fishing, but about things in general. Uh, you know, a lot of times we have this idea that things can be very complicated and Tenkara is one way to show us that there's a simpler way of thinking about things. You know, I just got into bread making. I always thought bread was the most complicated thing <laughs> to make. And I learned it doesn't have to be complicated. Uh, so Tenkara kind of, it shows us there's a different way of thinking, I think. Can one use the Tenkara method, uh, let's say, in a stream uh, on the eastern plains? Or is it simply in the mountains of Colorado? Well, uh, 
pretty much anywhere. So Indiana, it's abroad, you know, with a you know a, a lure at the end of it. Um, we focus a lot on mountain stream fishing. I think that's where Tenkara shines the most uh, because streams can be very difficult, very challenging to fish with a uh, a western fly rod and reel and that kind of thing because you have different techniques that are challenging. And Tenkara really shines in moving water because you have this longer rods, very, very light line. You're casting on the other side of currents. So the currents are not picking up your line and dragging it downstream. So it just makes things a little bit simpler, not only in terms of equipment, but also how to do it in mountain streams. Other than that, of course, if I'm hiking up in, let's say, Rocky Mountain National Park, you know, and I hit a lake and I see some fish, um, usually I have a rod with me and I'll fish a little bit in lakes as well. Or, as I mentioned, the runoff season, ponds that we have all over, you know, in the front range, Mm -hmm. they're really, really fun to fish. How has the style changed in the U.S. since you brought it here? Uh, Have you seen Western influences creep in? Oh, definitely. Uh, You know, I think people kind of take uh, different things and they'll kind of adapt it, you know, to their needs. Or perhaps they have experience with other ways of fishing and they might kind of combine them. I tend to focus a lot on sharing the story of how Tenkat is done by the anglers in Japan because they really keep it very simple. Uh, but I also know that people are going to deviate from that. So might as well start from a pure kind of place and let people do what they want to do. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. That is Daniel Galhardo. He's author of the book Tenkara, a complete guide to the techniques, gear, history, and philosophy of Tenkara, the Japanese method of fly fishing. He spoke with my colleague Nathan Heffel. You can read an excerpt from the book and see photos in it at cprnews.org. Finally today, Natalie Tate is a fixture on Denver's music scene. She's been lead guitarist for the band Arc Life has shared stages with Gregory Allen Isakoff and Esme Patterson. Last year, Tate was voted Best Singer-Songwriter by Westward. Her music has drawn comparisons to the likes of Feist and Cat Power. On her sophomore album, Broken Open, Tate takes on an electronic approach to her music. Here's the track Your Type recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. And here we Denver's Natalie Tate with your type and your my type for listening. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. So far, so
your type for your type